Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. Good evening, this is To Be Discussed with Kuppinger, a show that proves that different political opinions do not have to end in feuds and a breakdown of friendships. My name is George Kupp and I'll be joined by my co-host and political opposite, Callum Gurr. Good evening everybody, that's right, George is a hardline Brexiteer and truly conservative, whereas I'm a Libden and Ramona, but despite these different standpoints, we are still good friends. Tonight we'll be asking, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? What is the best movie of all time? And finally, do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls, which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic. But first, last week we asked you to send in your opinions on the following question. In 200 years, what will our generation be remembered for? So, as always, you guys have been sending in lots and lots and lots of messages. Um, and if I could have it my way, the our generation will be remembered for sending in messages to uh, to be discussed. But <laughs> there we go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but our first message comes in from Joanna and she says, I think that our generation will be remembered for our role in fighting climate change. Generations before us have discovered climate change and done nothing about it. But we're the first generation to really take it seriously and see how much it threatens our future and our way of life. Whether it's protests like uh, the likes of Greta Thunberg or the thoughts, the sorts of jobs we might get in the future to help us fight against climate change. I really think that our generation could help to save the world. Well, that's a powerful speech, Callum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I hope that we are the generation that helps to save the world. I mean, it's a, it's obviously it's a bit of a daunting prospect, really. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think it certainly is something that um we could be remembered for being the generation that fights climate change. I mean, obviously this um this topic's actually come from a message we got in when we done um one of our uh send in your questions for our, me and George to answer. And when I answered that question originally I did say uh that I think it was probably what we'd be remembered for would be um being the f- uh the last generation that had a chance to um 
change our ways, change our society in, in many senses, mm. um, before climate change takes effects which are then irreversible. Um, so I think that's very much of the same kind of uh, opinion as what Joanna said here. Uh, and obviously Joanna's taken a, a very optimistic line towards this, and I think that's really good. Um, and I think, I think she's dead right that actually um, that even something as simple as the sorts of jobs we might have in the future are going to be massively, massively impacted um, by climate change, and hopefully for the better. And by that I mean hopefully it means because we've modified our jobs so that they are far better for the environment, far more carbon neutral, um, and all of these things. What do you think, George? Yeah, I think definitely it will be one of the things that we should be remembered for. Um, we have the chance to make a, an impact on the future um, of our own lives. And I think that's why it's also so important. It's not just the, the future of p- people's lives after us. It's the future of our own lives that we could change by, yeah. by adopting these new policies and different approaches of life. Um, and, I, and I think it's it's good that we are recognising it. And, and I absolutely do agree that we will be remembered for um, changing the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to our next uh, opinion, it's from Rachel. Rachel said, we are the first generation to grow up with social media from the time we were born and through to the rest of our lives. And that is such a major thing that we will be remembered as the social media generation. That could be a good thing or a really bad thing. Time will tell. But I just hope that social media ends up be- um, ends up bec- becoming an amazing thing, like how it was first advertised, and not a Chinese-style tracking tool which destroys our life. <laughs> I mean, George, what what do you make of that? Well, I think Rachel makes a very good point in the terms that we are the first generation that has grown up with social media. Um, yeah. And I think specifically, if I, I want to kind of just quickly focus on Callum and Mai's generation, because we were really the generation that it suddenly came a new thing when we were growing up. Um, and I think maybe regretfully we were quite naive when social media came around and we weren't really too worried about what we posted on there um and i'm sure those of us who want to go into a more public life and and be scrutinized by the public will um there could be elements of social media that comes around and bites us on the bottom um and and that does worry me i i kind of hope that generations that are being brought up um with social media from the start have the lessons and the and the um understanding around social media that necessarily my generation our generation didn't really have around it um because it wasn't the norm it was a very new thing and we were kind of in the unknown um so i I think definitely our generation will be uh remembered for um, the use of social media and the use of technology in the way that we do use it. Um, I just, with Rachel, I do really hope that it will be, um, in the remembrance of a, of a positive thing, not a negative thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you, um, cause it's very interesting what you're saying about obviously, um, the fact that there is a, a concern because nowadays, um, things that people tweet maybe when they're a lot younger and a lot more naive can come around and um, bite them in the bottom, as you say, yeah. um, later in life and really damage their future career prospects. 
So do you think that the risk of that is much less for uh, newer generations as such, or the, or the generation that's coming up after us? I would like to think so, because I would like to think that the understanding around it is a lot more. Um, and I would like to think that we were the generation that kind of made the mistakes on social media and that yeah. I would hope that younger generations don't make those same mistakes. I mean, obviously, everyone makes mistakes. But even still, I, I hope that because also social, social media, as time has gone on, as we have seen, it's got more advanced, more developed. Um, and it has mean that is meant, excuse me, that um people are safer online you know when it was a new f- thing that happened there was security issues people could could get hacked people you know all kinds of these things and, and i think as time has gone on social media has got a more safer platform but is it not something that worries you callum that you know when maybe one day you do become um the laura kroonsberg of um the political uh journalist world do you not think it's going to be a little bit strange when you're hard when you're questioning someone about let's say maybe me um on tv questioning me about um why we should be leaving the eu because you're a journalist and neutral and i turn around and say yeah but on facebook you turn around and said that we should have stayed in the eu is that not something that worries you um, yes, I, I mean, I guess that there is a massive um, problem in terms of um, neutrality of the press and, and things like that. And obviously, social media will play a much bigger role in exposing um, journalists who are less than neutral. Um, but I think pro- probably as well, I, I I am worried about it, not necessarily for those perspectives, because I think my views are quite well documented. And I'd be silly to try and pretend I don't hold those views, didn't hold those views, that that sort of thing. Um, however, um, there is also the risk that maybe I've in the past tweeted something which now I don't agree with or, or I've posted on Facebook something which now I don't agree with. But as effectively, I don't think people would care as such because um, <laughs> social media seems to or or when people look at social media they assume that people don't have that room to to change their mind and so i think that's a a really big worry anyway just from like social media histories and things like that yeah um our next opinion comes in from alex and they say this is such a hard question because our generation is really only in the first like quarter or even sixth of our life but i think that in a few years we're going to look at the the amount we use our mobile phones the same way as we look at smoking cigarettes so i think we will probably be remembered for health issues we develop because of mobile phones well do you know what never even thought of that callum yeah, no, it's not something I, when I was thinking this question, I necessarily thought of. I think it is a really um, strong point from Alex there. Um, and I, I think more generally, I think there is a, a big concern about the kind of health issues future generations are going to have. Because our generation, luckily, George, mine and yours, maybe yeah. Alex's as well, I think we... Because we were right at the start of social media and everyone having mobile phones and all of that, we still did have a childhood where we went out and played mm. outdoors, where we used our imagination. And all of these things were actually really quite um, important for childhood development. I yeah. am concerned that the generation following us 
not so much get that because mobile phones and social media in general and the internet are so um, pervasive across all elements of, of life now. And mm. um, so, so I think there is a concern there and, and about the health issues that, that Alex has flagged up. What do you think, George? Yeah, I think it's it's something that is um, really important. And as you said, Callum, and I said earlier, it's not something that I actually really thought about. Um, and I, I think it's very right that we are definitely really focused on on having a phone in our hand. I mean, it's the it's the port of information. The, the amount, you know, I couldn't really do my job as well as I do without my phone because the amount of information that I get from it is incredible, and and it allows me to to have contact with people that I need to have contact with. Um, and I, I find it interesting with the the argument around um, phones because. If we have the approach that we've had recently with cigarettes, where cigarettes are now trying to be phased out, is there room to say then that in the future we will see us try and phase out the use of mobile phones and, and try not to be so reliant on mobile phones and try and have that more of a childhood where we are outside, where we are playing with our friends and not just sitting on a computer or an Xbox or a PlayStation. Um, and I think that is a really important point that we could be looking at a completely different future um, with with phones. I mean, I, I realized the other day when I was on my phone, the way I put my phone in my hand, it sits on my little finger in my left um, left hand and I now have a little dent in my finger wow. where where my phone has sat so often um, and it's quite worrying and, and I, I genuinely I mean I know this is probably a bit hypothetical but um, I do wonder whether or not because we use our mobile phones so much whether through evolution our hands or eyesight might slowly change around technology that we have today yeah yeah that is a really interesting po- point it's not one I'd certainly thought of. Um, I guess, I mean, it's probably unlikely to affect um, anything in our lifetime. Yeah, well, but yeah. it's certainly possible. Yeah, and uh, yeah. in the future, um, Absol- it could absolutely. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So remember, we will be announcing what the question will be for you to send in your opinions on at the end of tonight's show. So make sure you're ready for that, for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show. But it is now time for Callum and I's first song break of this evening. So we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. Time to move on to our second discussion of this evening. And we are asking the question, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? So last Thursday, that's the 24th of October, was United Nations Day, which is a day designed to commemorate the signing of the Charter of the United Nations in 1945 on the same day, the 24th of October. The event officially um, shall be devoted to making known to the people of the world the aims and achievements of the United Nations and to gaining their support for its work. One of the biggest aims of the UN is to promote world peace, with the jury still being out on whether it is effective in ensuring this happens. Conflicts like Kosovo and Sierra Leone are seen as successes of the organisation but there are many cases where it has failed to keep the peace. George, overall, do you think the UN has been effective in promoting world peace? 
Well, I'm so happy you've asked me this question, Callum. Um, I, as you've clearly said in the introduction there, the UN came about to promote peace and security for countries all across the world and ensure that we don't end up in the same situation that we did around World War um, Two, and um, to make sure that potentially a World War Three never, ever happens. Yeah, I think it's very hard to ensure that countries are always peaceful, that they are always engaging in um, diplomatic conversations and that they are all agreeing because they're through all the countries in the world. You have different ideologies, you have different policies, you have different political outlooks. Um, and because of that, it's very hard for each country to see eye to eye over certain matters that affect the whole world. And of course, you're going to get disagreements. I mean, if you have disagreements with your friends, then I think it's only natural that leaders of countries have disagreements as well over certain matters. Yeah. It's only a natural thing to happen. So firstly, I, I want to compliment the UN for even being set up and for even having the um, encouragement to to ensure that we are promoting the idea of, of a peaceful um, time to and, and make sure that that war is never the, the first answer. Um, and I mean, I have argued many a time on this radio show about that I uh, am someone that would much prefer the diplomatic approach rather than going in with um, guns and shooting everyone. Yeah. Um, and over its time, the UN has um, right now, the, the UN has 14 peacekeeping operations going on currently since 1948. There has been 71 deployed um, since uh, 71 police operations uh, deployed and the majority of those have been successful. The 14 that are going on right now um, from reports that I've read are saying that they are progressively successful and that they, they do seem as if there is a peaceful um, process going on, which is good. And I, I think the the way I look at it is the UN don't just go in and say, right, we need peace. We need to, to stop this or to, to stop this war is that if there has been a war that go, has gone on, they have different policies in place, like a peace building process where um, if a country has gone through war, they will go in there. They will give them advice about how to um, emerge from that conflict, how, what policies to put in place, how to um, come around from it, what what's best way forward for the country um and also i think what is most important about the un is they have the general assembly and all member states of that general assembly can meet up and discuss certain issues that they have with one another um to ensure that they don't have to go straight in um to war to get their argument across so i would say overall the un has been effective in promoting world peace but what do you think Callum? I'd say it's been effective in promoting world peace as an idea. Yeah. Um, I think you'd struggle to find a nation that says it wants war as such. But I think in practice, it's obviously not been as effective as it potentially could be. Although I think that's maybe a little bit too harsh because I think, unfortunately, uh, war is just a, a, a fact of life between um, all societies really not even just modern societies but look back all through history there's always war because as you say people fall out and this is like the the ultimate um, and uh, ho most horrible kind of end game to mm. an argument really yeah. is war yeah. um, so, so I think in that sense 
Um, it would be harsh to say it's not been effective in promoting world peace, but we do also have to accept the fact that, you know, it, it's not been entirely successful. I think the trouble with the UN is that quite often it is forced to stand on the sidelines because the Security Council, um, which is made up of, I believe, five states, yeah. um, or at least five permanent members, um, they just cannot agree on, on, on what to do. Um, I mean, if we look at the, in the Syrian conflict, um, we saw, uh, Russia veto in action against, uh, General Assad, um, when the United States and, and the UK and I believe France as well mm-hmm. wanted to, um, you know, condemn Assad, but also, um, possibly launch a, a, a peacekeeping mission there to keep people safe. Um, and, and so I don't know really who, who you blame in that scenario as such, you know, whether or not we, we say that it's the UN's fault because structurally it's prevented from doing things because of, you know, the procedures it has in place, which is that members of the Security Council have a veto uh, and things like that, or whether or not we say it's actually the fault of these rogue states um, like Russia. And I do appreciate that often uh, Russia has a point as such. Um, mm. And, you know, that we, we have to bear in mind sometimes their um, issues that they have, even if I think often, you know, that they're um, maybe a little bit too aggressive. Yeah. And things you- like that. Do you think then, if we're looking at the system of um, the Security Council, as it were, um, do you think that we it is the wrong process to have countries come together and, and, and majority of them say that they want to do something? And just because one country has a veto, then that decision has to be cleared. Do you think they should have the view or take the view that um, because a majority is saying that they want it, then that should go ahead? Um, it's a really difficult one. Uh, in in kind of as a conceptual idea, I think yes, I, I would agree that uh, it should just be the majority rules as such. Um, in, in many ways, anyway. Um, although you can certainly see a scenario where a, a, a country that maybe is, a, a, you know, alone in terms of it's the only country that um, has as a state religion, a, a certain religion, for example you could see a scenario in which the majority rules to effectively, you know, um, take, carry out a peacekeeping mission, never um, uh, attack them effectively. Um, yeah. So, so there is a concern there. But I think in general, re- in reality, we, we do know that m- modern states aren't too much like that, or certainly there's enough that a majority would need to be of right-thinking people generally, I suppose would be the way I, I, I would put it. Um, um, but it's a very difficult one. Do you, do you think as well, that I, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, mm-hmm. do you think that um, because Russia um, is a bit volatile um, yeah. as a country, do you think that it is likely that they have more of a say or their veto is more influential on decisions because the UN know that if 
um, they turn around and say ignore Russia's idea, then it's it, out of all the countries on that council that it could be Russia would, that would stick up a fuss. Yeah, I think there is obviously a precedent for the fact that, that Russia's got a history of um, not just kicking up a fuss, but actually um, committing troops to things. Obviously, we've seen it in Syria, but we, we also saw it... Um, in Chechnya as well, um, so that you know that that is going to mean that you do almost trust that if Russia's got a problem with something, they're going to do something about it. Yeah, it's the kind of softer power we often see from the more Western powers, although maybe that has changed slightly with Donald Trump in the states. Um, yeah. But it does mean that maybe when they're kicking up a fuss, you think you can. Um, talk them round a little bit more. I mean, what do you think of that, George? I, de- I definitely think that, unfortunately, because of the history behind countries like Russia, um, it, it, it's like so because they have that decision and because they have a problem with it, it's like as if the other countries have to kind of walk on eggshells to make sure that they're trying to please Russia, to make sure that they aren't being volatile over the decisions that are being made. Um, and I and I think that is unfortunate that in actual fact, the person, the people that we're trying to um, stop being aggressive have in a way the most control over the council because they are threatening to be aggressive. Yeah, yeah, it is a sad state of affairs. I'm really interested actually to see how this poll um, turns out, whether or not people think the United Nations has been effective in promoting world peace. I mean, what do you think people are going to say, George? I think it's going to be very close. And going on my record that I'm doing very well on polls so far, <laughs> I'm going to say that it's going to be 52% uh, yes. And 48% no. That oh God, that's lucky me, number. Yeah, I was going to say, that's giving me horrible, horrible numbers. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that people are going to say no, but yeah, again, by a, a small small number. We'll, we'll say I say the reverse. Uh, <laughs> right then, uh, time for our second talk break of this evening. But remember to vote on this poll. Is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? You can do that with radio.co.uk forward slash listen, and we'll be back very soon. Hello, and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So before the break, we ask, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? And to find out the results, to that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at WizRadio. Okay, so let's move on to our third discussion of this evening, and we're asking the question, what is the best movie of all time? Now, before any of you listeners are going to sit there and say that Callum and I have only picked the following movies because um, they're our favourites, I can tell you now that that isn't necessarily true. We have yeah. gone on from the IMDB ratings of the films, um, which are the, the highest rating films, so we've put those into there, so you can't sit there and say that these are only the films that Callum and I like, because some of them I haven't even seen. So... <laughs> <laughs> so uh so you know every everybody has their favorite films everybody loves films i believe but it's always very very hard to be able to sit there and say which film is actually 
your favourite or which is the best film ever produced of all time. So, out of the following, which one would you pick? The Godfather, The Shawshank Redemption, Dark Knight, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Pulp Fiction, or the famous film other um, but before i throw it to all of you lovely listeners we've got to throw it to um the famous film critic that is mr callum Gurr. what are your thoughts oh i was just thinking there probably is a film called other and, and so <laughs> someone's gonna be really happy if, if that one ends up winning or the fact they've even made the list they're gonna be really really that's, happy that's the only one i've seen <laughs> um well actually that was a question I was going to um, throw to you before uh, before I answer it. So, George, how many of these films have you seen? I have seen uh, three or four of them. What do you mean, all four? I, I can't remember if I've seen Pulp Fiction or not. Oh, okay. Well, that's really not helpful because I that's the only film here I haven't seen Pulp Fiction. Oh. God. Uh, we should have done our homework, shouldn't we? We should before, have really, yeah. Before coming on. So um, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that our case for Pulp Fiction is probably not going to be as strong as, as the rest <laughs> because we haven't um, we haven't seen them. Uh, uh, but um, no, as, as I say, I've seen all but Pulp Fiction. Um, and I'd say out of all of these films, the best of the lot is The Shawshank Redemption. Oh. Um, and I, I think the reason I say that is because it just, it's the twist at the end, and I don't want to kind of, um, yeah, don't ruin it. I don't want to ruin it, but the twist at the end does come very, very unexpected. But also, I think that the Shawshank Redemption does provide a really powerful social commentary, um, on, uh, the American prison system and, and things like that. So on that basis, I'd say The Shawshank Redemption is the best movie there. The Godfather is also a fantastic film. Um, probably some eagle-eyed um, listeners, or eagle-eared <laughs> listeners, uh, will be saying, why is The Godfather Part 2 not on there? Uh, and technically on the IMDb rankings, I believe The Godfather Part 2 should be in there, uh, but we just didn't want to put in two of, well, they're not obviously the same film, but two Godfather films, uh, just because it gets very confusing for people, I think, sometimes knowing which one's which and, and all of that. So we've just gone with The Godfather, but, um, you know, obviously The Godfather Part 2 is fantastic as well. The Dark Knight, obviously, amazing, although it does lead a question on whether or not now The Dark Knight is an example of the best Joker or the best um, actor playing the Joker because I think um, Joking uh, Phoenix has played it immensely in this new Joker movie. Um, And so, you know, and actually on the IMDb rankings as well, the Joker was actually really up there. Um, But because it's so recent a film, um, I don't think it was really fair to include it in all time because quite often films have high IMDb rankings early on and then there's a kind of maybe they depreciate in quality over time or, or, or things like that. And of course, Lord of the Rings, I think, will probably come top in this list just because the Lord of the Rings is so iconic and it's become a, a massive uh, classic amongst our generation. But George, mm. well, what do you think? 
I thought you were never going to shut up. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I'll just, as you've been talking, actually, I'm quite happy you've been talking because I've just been noting down some things. Yeah. Um, so I just quickly wanted to have a look at what the general public are saying about these. And yeah. um, it's quite interesting. So the Godfather actually ranks the highest out on Rotten Tomatoes at 98%. Right. Um, Dark Knight is at 94%. Lord of the Rings at 94%. Um, Pulp Fiction at 92%. And The Shawshank Redemption only at 90%. Um, which quite surprised me actually but i must say that my favorite out of all of these definitely definitely has to be um lord of the rings i i, I remember watching it as a child and i i must admit i don't think when i was younger i overly understood the whole concept of it and yeah i was a bit of a scaredy cat and i didn't watch most of it i was behind a pillow um <laughs> wow and <laughs> I I um, always wanted to be Gandalf, um, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have the beards to do it. So um, I still believe that one day I'll be able to grow the beard. Um, and it's a film that allows me to keep going back to it. Um, and every time I watch it, I understand it more and more and more. Yeah. Um, and my mum has um, this idea that she really wants to be able to sit down for a day and watch all of the Lord of the Rings from start to finish, even the Hobbits um, from start to finish and just binge all of them. And I mean, I don't know when we're going to have time to do that, but you never know. Uh, It would be something quite good to do. I would love to do it. Um, I mean, second place for me probably has to be um, the dark Knight because I just feel that that whole film was so well acted and so well portrayed. Um, and as you say, the Joker in that film was just fabulously acted. Um, and I haven't seen the new Joker film, so I, I'm not going to talk about that because it would be wrong for me to do so. Um, but I, I, it's one of those films that even though it is kind of like a superhero film, but it is and it isn't, um, I don't, I'm not really a fan of superhero films, yet yeah. it's a film that I can absolutely put on and enjoy immensely. Um, if you want something that's, you know, a bit more emotional, a bit more hard struck, then definitely put on Shawshank Redemption. If you fancy a bit of a cry, get it on there. Um, cause I definitely shed a tear at that. Um, cause it's a beautiful film. It's a very hard hitting film, but at the same time, for the era that it was made, um, I think it's really well done and, and the, cinematic qualities of it as well are just beautiful so um, some of the shots and everything it really um gives a really clear picture an idea as kind of says of the prison system in america in the time um so yeah I, as hard as it is for me to pick which one i def i'm gonna stick to um my first ruling and say the lord of the rings um absolutely fair enough fair enough and i, th- I think it's um really interesting though because all of these films um, are based, uh, although I'm not entirely sure about publishing, but at least four of these films are based upon other source material. Not They're not just screenplays as such. You know, The Godfather is a book originally. Shawshank Redemption, I believe, is a book as well. Obviously, Dark Knight is based upon comic books. And Lord of the Rings, obviously, is a, is a book series as well. Um, so, so do you think that good cinema as such um needs to have another source material to call upon to make the plot the most impactful george i i think it definitely helps like if we look at for example harry potter as well and 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 the and the game of thrones as well i i think 
it's evidence, and I'm sorry to, to go on about Game of Thrones a little bit here, but when we came to the last season, because that book hadn't been written or released, I to me, it felt like that season dropped away because it didn't really have that originality and that um, the book to go from, and they had to do it on their own steam. Um, I know George R. R. Martin did help with, with that, but even yeah. still, I don't think it had the same effect as it would have if the book was in place. Um, and I think it ultimately, with all of these films, absolutely, it helps immensely when you have a book in place because when people read books, they like to imagine that what, is going on in their heads you know they like to picture the events that are being described on on the page and by going to the film you can actually see those things that you have imagined on the screen in reality um and i think that creates makes a film so much more special um by kind of clarifying your imagination what what do you think though yeah no i think um you know, having other source material is uh, massively important. And I, I will say as well, Pulp Fiction is uh, loosely, and I, I say loosely, but it is loosely based upon uh, the Black Mask magazine as well. Um, so so I guess you could say all of them do mm. have some kind of other uh, influence upon them. Although I think another interesting thing about this is that not all of these books have really got the same mass market appeal or um, as what the film about them does have. But I think that's also a commentary on the fact that uh, obviously people are more are happy to watch oh. a film yeah. than to read a book. But <laughs> there we are, myself included, I will say. <laughs> um, and what what out of these do you think is going to win, Callum? Uh, I think Lord of the Rings is going to come out on top just because, you know, everyone likes Lord of the Rings. Uh, and everyone has watched Lord of the Rings, really. So I just think this is going to come on top. What about you? Definitely um, Other. It's a really good film. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think it's going to be uh, between Lord of the Rings or Dark Knight. Okay, very interesting. I, I'm going to be on the fence. Um, but remember to vote on this question. What is the best movie of all time? So it is between The Godfather, The Shawshank Redemption, Dark Knight, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Pulp Fiction, or other. And you can do that on wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back before you even know it. Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked the question, what is the best movie of all time? And to find out the results of that, please go to our Twitter page. That's at Wiz Radio. Right then, time to move on to our fourth discussion of this evening. And we are asking the question, do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? <laughs> And I'm, I've got to say that, um, in terms of how these introductions have matched up this week, I think George is much better placed, uh, to talk about these kind of things than me because George does actually have diabetes. So, so George, do you want to talk us through the difference then between type one and type two diabetes? So, I mean, let's just uh, be honest here. If, if this was, if you were a listener, Callum, you'd be voting no on this question. Yes, I would. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm surprised you don't know the difference because, I mean, we've been friends, what, all our lives. And I've had di type 1 diabetes for nearly eight years now. Yeah. And as you know, it's not something that I hide. So 
I think I think I vaguely know the difference. To be fair. Okay. All right. So should I should I try and say what I think it is and then please do please do that. all listeners listen out to the end to see whether or not I'm I'm wrong <laughs> sort of thing. Um, I I believe the type one diabetes mm. is the hereditary one, right. and type two is the one which uh, you can develop in life and then also you can make much less severe through um, dietary decisions and exercise decisions and things like this is am i correct in that well let's have a drum roll please um, oh. this isn't good for this kind of topic george I know. I do. Well, I, do you know what? I think it is, though, because I, I believe that, that you've got to see a light side to, to things like this. Um, and I think it's good to have a bit of a joke about it, to be honest with you. Fair um, enough, yeah. So, type, you are, you are actually very correct. Type 1 is hereditary. Um, you get it through, obviously, members of your family. Um, if you've got it in your ancestry genes, um, then you are more likely to become type 1. My, um, grandpa on my mum's side had it and my grandma on my dad's side had it so i kind of had no hope um yeah and i got it and type two as you again you're very correct in saying callum is indeed um through diet decisions so if you eat too much sugar um if you are potentially overweight then you are more likely to have type 2 diabetes and but if you change the way that you um eat and change your diet to less sugary and carbon-based um, carbohydrates, then you will uh, you can get rid of type 2 diabetes. And essentially as well, type 1 is where your body attacks your pancreas, um, which is the part of your body which makes the uh, hormone insulin. And type right. 1 people don't have insulin being pumped around their body. So we have to take injections um, when we eat, when we go to bed, um, and our blood sugars can flux up and down um, depending on what we've eaten. Whereas type 2, their pancreas still works. It just can't work hard enough with the amount of sugar or carbohydrates that are going into the body. So to help that, you have to take tablets to encourage your pancreas to produce more um, insulin. And also, I'm pretty sure the tablets as well have a level of insulin in them as well. Um, I think as I think... The thing with type 1 and type 2 as well is that no one actually knows what causes type 1 diabetes. There are theories around it, but no one right. actually has an answer as to what why it's brought about um, because it is literally your immune system one day decides to attack your pancreas and kill it off. Um, and it's a very painful process. I remember the day when it happened. Um, it's horrible. And it's 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 not. A very nice thing to go through and type one as well especially people that have it from a young age if you don't look after yourself properly if you don't maintain your blood sugars at a low level you are very likely to potentially lose the ability to have children when you're older lose your eyesight have a heart attack have stroke lose your limbs um there are many causes of diabetes um when you're older if you don't look after yourself that are quite scary and i and i I am someone that I, I believe that there isn't enough awareness around type one, especially diabetes. Um, I think people are more aware of type two because it's always in the headlines on the NHS and everything. But I, people don't hear enough about type one diabetes. And yeah. I think that's a shame. Um, and unfortunately, 
right now, um, a lot of the funding that we are seeing um, within the NHS isn't being spent on type 1 diabetes. It's being spent on type 2 diabetes um, because that is an area of diabetes that is increasing massively. Um, and I maybe wrongly, but I have the opinion that the people that have got type 1 diabetes through no cause of their own deserve more of a right to have the attention put on them than someone that has um, put themselves in the situation where they have diabetes. Um, but that is my my own opinion. I, of course, I'm going to say that because I'm a type 1 diabetic. Um, but but yeah, so there, there is a little um, kind of very, very brief summary of the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, and I'm hoping now that all of you are going to vote yes on do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? <laughs> yes, uh, well, I will certainly be voting yes now, George. Um, <laughs> what what do you think, because uh, you've mentioned obviously that the majority of support tends to go towards type 2 diabetics. Mm. Um, what more support do you think there should be for type 1 diabetics? I think... Um, <sighs> There needs to be a bigger element of research around di uh, type 1 diabetes in terms of getting a artificial pancreas in place so we don't have to take injections every day. Yeah. Um, and it's after doing it for eight years, it just becomes part of your everyday life and you don't even think about giving injections. You just do it. Um, it you know, it's just a part of a routine yeah. and i think that there has been research in the past about um artificial pancreases and there has been even transplants with pancreases but they discovered that you have to have two pancreases to make sure that you you can actually um the pancreas works but even then only 35 percent of those transplants actually worked on patients um and there just needs to be a lot more research around the the um development of making sure people can be more healthy with type 1 diabetes in ensuring that they can have a functioning artificial pancreas. Right. Very interesting. I'm thinking, George, that me and you should do a fun run or something like that to raise money for Diabetes UK or something I, along those lines. I'm, I mean, I'm very happy for you to run um, <laughs> and I will walk. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it leads to their own and all of that. Uh, right then time to go on to our final song break of this evening but don't forget to vote on this poll do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes you can do that with radio.co.uk forward slash listen and we'll be back very soon <laughs> Hello and welcome back. So before the break, we ask, do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And to find out the results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page. That's at WizRadio. Right then, we've reached that sad time on a Sunday night to end the show. So thanks very much for listening to To Be Discussed with Cuppinger. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. As mentioned earlier, for the first segment of next week's show, we'd like to hear your opinions on... Do violent games and movies encourage real-life violence? Um, and you can do that by sending us an email to station at wizardradio.co.uk or through Twitter, that's at wizradio. So remember that question is, do violent games and movies encourage real-life violence? Do you like my telephone voice there? Um, and, <laughs> Wonderful. And I know, thank you. And we're looking forward to hearing your opinions next week. But it is now time for Callum and I to be leaving. So, as always, I have been the diabetic George Lawrence Cup. 
and I have been the knowing the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes calendar. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week for more great discussions. Goodbye, guys. Ciao for now. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com